0: better policies and procedures aren't going to build you a profitable business. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. We Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. This goes out to every entrepreneur that's ever had an existential crisis, the kind where you realize you've tied your identity to your business and you're not sure the former will survive without the latter. Today, we're going to be talking about the institutional imperative and why you are not your business. We're going to start off with a quote from Warren Buffett from a 1989 letter to shareholders. Here's the quote. My most surprising discovery, the overwhelming importance in business of an unseen force that we might call the institutional imperative. In business school, I was given no hint of the imperative's existence, and I didn't intuitively understand it when I entered the business world. I thought then that decent, intelligent, and experienced managers would automatically make rational business decisions. But I learned over time that isn't so. Instead, rationality frequently wilts when the institutional imperative comes into play. For example, as if governed by Newton's first law of motion, an institution will resist any change in its current direction, Or, just as work expands to fill available time, corporate projects or acquisitions will materialize to soak up available resources. Or, any business craving of the leader, however foolish, will be quickly supported by detailed rate of return and strategic studies prepared by his troops. And lastly, the behavior of peer companies, whether they are expanding, contracting, acquiring, setting executive compensation, or whatever, will be mindlessly imitated. Institutional dynamics – not venality or stupidity, set businesses on these courses, which are too often misguided. After making some expensive mistakes because I ignored the power of the imperative, I have tried to organize and manage Berkshire in ways that minimize its influence. Furthermore, Charlie and I have attempted to concentrate our investments in companies that appear alert to the problem. What does this have to do with you? That quote came to me out of a book that I recently read that was radically clarifying in many ways in the strategy that uh, I've intuited or come to learn over time and through a lot of pain. And I want to start off by talking about the idea of a local versus a global maxima. A local maxima is the idea that if you draw a circle somewhere within that circle is the ideal sweet spot for whatever it is that you're pursuing. If you draw a larger circle, the sweet spot, the key zone of opportunity is gonna be in a different location. So the question when we're optimizing is always, have we drawn the right circle? Is the circle big enough? Are we focusing on a local maxima or is there a much larger global maxima that we can only access by redefining the circle and the zone in which we are seeking and the zone in which we are playing. As this pertains to business, what I've found is that in many cases, I was asking too much of the opportunity in front of me. I think about the first business that I started, which was a lead gen business called Manage My Property. That business represented all of my hope and aspiration as an entrepreneur it was my first business my first opportunity my first rodeo and i got into it with some sage advice from a ceo that mentored me he ran a venture backed hoa company and was incredibly generous with his time his investment is in me has been profoundly impactful in setting me on the course that i'm on and at the end of that mentorship he gave me some very explicit and clear advice he said This mentorship and this time of investment is now over. It's time for you to start a business. Just remember, it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to fail. So just get started. That advice stuck in my brain. And yet, it was really hard for me to actually believe and practice. What quickly became um, an opportunity that was just spun up in, in taking that advice over time as i invested more effort more hope more belief more delusion in order to get myself up to it and and to believe that i wasn't going to be disappointed became something that it never could be i placed too much hope and aspiration into that business and as a consequence i stayed overly invested in it unwilling to consider other opportunities and unwilling to be objective about its performance and what it was capable of, of doing. There's a law, I forget the name of it, but something along the lines of that anything that's been happening, the longer it's been happening, the more likely it's going to keep happening. The longer a book has been on the bestseller list, the longer it's going to likely keep being on the bestseller list. This is the basic idea of forecasting. The forecast is first and foremost a representation of what is likely to happen, which necessarily requires looking back and using the past as precedent. That's the only way to make a, a uh, realistic valuation of a business or financial outcomes in the future. However, when we do forecasting, specifically when I do forecasting with coaching clients, the past is the last thing that we want to factor in as being determinative of the future. The past is something we dismiss. The past represents mistakes, faults, flaws, dashed dreams. It's the future that radically departs and looks nothing like the past. It's our timeline that represents a hockey stick rather than a linear curve. That was the kind of thinking that I embraced in my first business. I've seen it in other examples as well. I've seen businesses that had a modicum of success, but were turned on their head and were robbed of the opportunity that they could have been because rather than the business being what it wanted to be, there was an additional abundance of expectation that was placed on it. Excess capital was crammed into it because the business needed to be a 10x opportunity. It couldn't just be a one or 2 million dollar op and it would have been a great op at that it needed to be a 10 20 100 million dollar op and in the process the entire thing was squashed in many cases this is the essential criticism of a vc valley thinking there are 10 15 million dollar runway businesses that are shut down on the regular in the valley simply because the rate of return and the rate of velocity wasn't enough now in many cases that's justified because of how much capital was put into the business business. But the point that I'm making could be summed up as this. I like to ask myself, WWJBD, what would Jeff Bezos do if he was running my company in this moment? But as I ask that question, I have to accept that Jeff Bezos would shut it down. If I'm really honest, if you ask yourself, what would Elon, what would Jeff Bezos, pick your business hero what would that per- warren buffett what would that person do if they were running your company with a, su- a sufficient level of aspiration the only rational decision is to shut it down or to radically pivot it into something else the local maxima of the current opportunity is not sufficient to reward a certain level of aspiration that's clarifying to me that was a really helpful thought what i find in general is that you get what you're looking for in life and in business. I had a business coach at one point that asked me, when we're talking about a problem and working through solutions, and he's kind of chunking it down, trying to help me work through it. At one point, I was getting stuck on some particular minutia of how to execute a given opportunity. I really don't even remember what it was. But he asked me, What percentage of the outcome that was going to come from my efforts was a function of intention? And what percentage of it was a function of mechanics? My intention, for example, could be to build a $10 million business within the next three years. The mechanics are what we're going to sell, what market we're going to launch to, the pricing, the structure, the org chart, etc. And in that moment, when I first encountered that question my mind's natural bent was that the vast majority of it was going to be mechanics. I had been working with him for a minute, so I could kind of see where he was leading. I, I don't remember what I what I answered, but it was something along the lines of, of 50-50. And in sitting with that question, what's become clear to me over time is that it's 100% intention and 0% mechanics. The mechanics will show up. The mechanics will figure themselves out. It's the intention that drives the mechanics. And what I'm here to tell you is that the opportunity that you are currently are involved in may or may not be in line with the actual expectations that you have for yourself, for your life, for your family, and for your future. That's just common sense. Some of us are pursuing grade A opportunities, tier one. Some of us have, have B-level opportunities, C-level opportunities. We're always going to see them in light of what we want. And in many cases, it's that objectivity that's simply lacking. You could say this another way. You could say that better policies and procedures aren't going to build you a profitable business. How about that? Am I dismissing the need for policies, procedures, handbooks, org charts? No, absolutely not. What I am telling you is that those things have nothing to do with profit. You get profit by being focused on profit. You get great service by being focused on great service. You get raving fans by being focused on developing raving fans. You get a rewarding work experience as an entrepreneur and a business owner by by focusing on that. Too often in business, it's easy to focus via proxy. I'll read another another quote shared by Jeff Bezos during the shareholder letter. As companies get larger and more complex, there's a tendency to manage to proxies. This comes in many shapes and sizes, and it's dangerous, subtle, and very day-to. A common example is process as proxy. Good process serves so you can serve customers, but if you're not watchful, the process can become the thing. This can happen very easily in large organizations. The process becomes the proxy for the results you want. You stop looking at outcomes and just make sure you're doing the right process. Gulp. It's not that rare to hear a junior leader defend a bad outcome with something like, well, we followed the process. A more experienced leader will use it as an opportunity to investigate and improve the process. The process is not the thing. It's always worth asking, do we own the process or does the process own us? In a day two company, you might find it's the second. Now, the day two references a reference to the idea of it's always day one. We're always I'm always a white belt. I'm always learning. And in many ways, it's the assumption of expertise and acumen that causes us to get in the way of the behavior that drove our previous and initial success. In my own career, I radically resisted the possibility that what I was working on wasn't going to be sufficient to fulfill the expectations and, and desires that I had. I fought it, I kicked against it, I screamed it, even though I sensed it and I knew it internally. I wasn't willing to accept that, both partly for myself and the fact that my identity was tied up in the business, but also for my other partners. I work with partners across all of my businesses. And in some cases, my partners are more or less driven by an objective analysis of the business. And in some cases, when it's not... Saying, I don't want to keep pursuing this opportunity is tantamount to saying, I don't want to work with you. I'm going to abandon you. There's a a really warped dynamic when your identity gets tied up in the business in terms of what you make up about your decision to objectively invest your resources for a different kind of return in a different opportunity. What that should be like is you choosing to sell your bonds and invest it in stocks, or you choosing to sell your stocks and to invest it in rental properties. But instead of us thinking about it in terms of asset classes and opportunities, we think about it in terms of my success and my ability to give birth to something, and me as an entrepreneur, my competency as a human being, and the basis upon which I judge myself and I interpret that other people are going to judge me. Because of that, it means we simply have less optionality. The reality is, the most successful entrepreneurs have the most options, or put in reverse. Optionality drives positive outcomes for entrepreneurs. When you have options, you can make comparisons. This is part of the reason for hiring salespeople in pairs. When you hire salespeople in pairs, it's not one-to-one. It's not the salesperson snowing you about, it's the pricing, it's the reviews, we don't have enough sales collateral, I'm not getting enough leads. When you have a second salesperson in the room, they can they can uh, collude, as it were, and feed you the same BS. But the beauty about the market is that at some point, one of them is simply going to try harder or smarter or figure figure something else out. And as soon as that happens, the competition is on. And now we have an objective opportunity to actually see what's really driving the outcome here. Who's able to really Produce results and who's not. And it's that comparison that power comes from. It's that comparison that can allow you to ask yourself Should I keep investing in this business or should I start a new business or should I buy some more rental properties or should I simply spend more time with my family? Because if I'm not making any headway, busting my ass here at the office, I might as well go home, have some free time, do something that's actually fulfilling with my life optionality drives outcomes. The institutional imperative is describing the idea that simply because we have momentum and inertia, it drives more momentum and inertia. And that is something that we should be deeply suspicious of. We all know that working harder is not the answer. We all know that working smarter is a trite truism It's vague, not sure what that means. The better question is what are you, what behaviors are you engaging in that are incongruous with the outcomes that you want for yourself and for your life? And what I would submit to you is that doubling down and investing everything you have into this single opportunity is entirely possibly the thing that is going to drive negative outcomes for this opportunity, simply because it provides you with a lack of clarity and a lack of perspective. You looking at other opportunities, adjacent opportunities, related opportunities, unrelated opportunities, it's not a betrayal of what you're currently working on. I mean, that that comes up all the time. I've got a, a close friend grinding in an opportunity year after year in the same place he was when I met him. And he just can't let it go because of the implications of what he believes it would mean about him and his success as an entrepreneur and his grit and all the the BS that defines what it means to have that Puritan work ethic. Guys, I got that stuff growing up. If there was one thing that came through loud and clear growing up in my household, is that you could do just about anything you wanted in life. But if you were lazy, that was the ultimate mortal sin. And you were more or less going to be disowned. That wiring and that programming provides an intrinsic reward in grinding in believing that you're going to be the one that defies the odds, that you're going to experience this J-curve of failure that is made all the more glorious through an eventual success. The Reality is that the historical trajectory that you have been on is most likely, you have to assume that is the trajectory you're going to stay on in the absence of radical change. Pivoting businesses, tweaks, window dressing. Those things are fun. That's exciting. But in many cases, it is noise and it is distraction. It's it's about attention. Is your attention placed directly on the thing that you want most? Or is your attention placed on the thing that is going to perpetuate the circumstances that you have experienced up to this point? So guys, my advice for you is to get serious about R O I C, Return on Invested Capital. I read a book recently called Outsiders by Thomas Thorndike. I can't recommend this book enough. It's now in my top five most impactful business books that I've ever read. It was a reminder to me about return on invested capital, which is a concept that Greg Crabtree introduced me to. And it was clarifying when Greg first brought it up because it really answered the question of, how do I know whether or not I should keep investing more time and effort into my business? And for many of you, and for myself as well, the business isn't necessarily kicking off huge amounts of cash flow. In the book, the book was talking about publicly traded companies, and the book is evaluating the eight greatest CEOs of all time as defined by return on shareholder capital. And these guys are throwing around tens, hundreds, in some case billions of dollars to invest in other opportunities. Their core asset or their core opportunity is X and For each of these operators, rather than continue to invest in X, they took an even objective analysis of where capital would best be allocated and were willing to invest in completely unrelated or adjacent opportunities. In some cases, that looked like an acquisition. It could look like a conglomerate. It doesn't need to be made overly complicated. The point is, as you're listening to this right now, your key asset is time. Where is your time and attention Placed, You are an entrepreneur. You are in the one set by definition of the fact that you gave birth and life to this thing. To a non-entrepreneur, going from zero to one looks very similar to going from one to two or three to four or five to six. The reality is... The reason it's yours, the reason you're the equity holder is that going from zero to one requires the special skill set of belief, of faith that the future is going to be bright and therefore it's worth taking a gamble. If you have that skill set and that disposition, what I want you to believe and to know is that this isn't your one shot. You have time. If you created this, you can create that. You, what you need to do is to get real about your level of optimism about the future because that, my friends, means everything. Your level of optimism about the future is entirely determinative of your current behavior. And you can gauge your optimism about the future by how loosely you're holding what you currently have versus how much gripping there is going on if you sense that you're gripping if you sense that it's a grind if there's a recurring theme of bitching about the same things with no progress you can know that that's indicative of the fact that there's limited a limited level of optimism that you have about your future and when that happens you know what comes from that when when you think that you've capped out you hold tightly to what you have. You allow ego to come up. That comes up for me a lot. When I see a strong level of ego or presumption of uh, somebody really just thinks that they're they're on top of it. To me, that's indicative of the fact that they believe that they have run out of growth. I want to be a permanent white belt. I want to grow at a radical rate throughout my entire life. And at the end, I want to believe that I was still on the early, early, early side of what was possible. That's what's rewarding to me. And I believe that that mindset is incredibly impactful in how you think about your opportunities. So get objective Um, get clear about optionality, create new opportunities for yourself, realize that you can do more things than what you're doing right now. Radical change may be the answer. And if radical change isn't the answer, then exiting may be the answer. Someone listening to this podcast right now has a business that could be an incredible opportunity if they would simply let go of the aspirations for the business and let the business run profitably, efficiently, without trying to constantly change, tweak, break, redefine processes, throw throw, burn money at sales and marketing when they actually have no idea how that works. So get clear about what this current opportunity is capable of. Place expectations upon it. If you think it's going to grow, if you think that you're in that hockey stick pattern, make the business and the opportunity accountable. Have timelines, have objective Um, expectations and measurements about what the business is actually doing for you. But above all, pursue opportunity, pursue optionality, and believe that the future is going to be brighter than the past. That's what I got for you guys today. Hopefully that is useful. Again, the book is Outsiders by uh, author's last name is Thorndike. Highly recommend it. One of the book I'm going to recommend is Making Money is Killing Your Business. That's all I got. Talk to you guys next week.